Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 79. This week, Anthony takes some voyages with Marco Polo, and I pick up some awesome cardboard clothing. So check it out as we talk about taking games to the next level. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everybody. Once again, we are back. The boys are back in town, and we have a great episode for you. So just to start off with, we all know that Gen Con is just right around the corner, and we wanted to start off with this intro to give you a little bit of an update on what to expect for Board Gamers Anonymous at the upcoming Gen Con. Now, part of the really great news is that you can find us at booth 3030 on Thursday at 11 o'clock, and we will be manning the Dice Tower Network booth. So if you are at Gen Con on Thursday, please, please come out to see us. The whole crew will be there. Even Daniel will be there. Everyone's just going to come to meet Daniel, and the rest of us will be like, and we're here too. <laughs> we just wanted to make sure you were okay, Daniel. We hadn't heard from you in such a long time. <laughs> Yeah, Daniel here. Okay, cool. Is Daniel's volunteer here? Okay. Where are these other guys? And the other guys. Once again, we will be at the Dice Tower booth, booth number thirty thirty, at eleven to twelve o'clock. But we'll also be available throughout the the con. So if you do see us, whether we're playing a game or walking around randomly, come up to us, say hello, and uh, we would love to meet you. And the next episode we'll have for you, we'll have some more details about what specific events, workshops, and games we'll be playing so that if you do have some time available, as always, we would love for you to join us at the table. Please do. Please do. We're just going to be, well, I won't speak for everybody else. I can only speak for myself and Daniel. Uh, (laughs) We'll be wandering around randomly looking at many, many different things and Try not to spend all the monies. So if you do see me, please come up and ask to play a game. It'll save me some money. And this is actually all of our first Gen Con. So if you've ever been to Gen Con before, please help us out. You know, us walking around circles usually means we're lost. And if you've never been to Gen Con before, then definitely come to find us because we'll walk around in circles together until somebody (laughs) finds us. All right, so that's everything for our intro. Now on to the news. Shout it from the tabletops. Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Got to work in my echo. (laughs) Hey, did you know last week it was Christmas in July? What? (laughs) That's what Amazon was calling it. Their Amazon Prime Day. Supposed to be Black Friday deals in the middle of July. Um... Guys, did you check it out? Were you overwhelmed by all the great deals? No. Games? No. <laughs> no. I get up at 4.30 in the morning. I was super excited because I'm like, not many people get up this early. Not many people have these children to deal with. I'm going to be up so early, I'll get all the games to myself. And I logged on, and it was like handheld vacuum cleaners and ball bearings. And I love the ball bearings game. It's awesome. <laughs> Especially when you play with the vacuum expansion. It was so bad. Such a bad sale. 
they, they just have way too many items there, and it's just hard to find what you want or find anything good. But in general, the comments uh, that were posted to different forums were very negative. It was underwhelming. And especially, I'm sure a lot of hobbyists, gamers were out there looking for good deals. There weren't that many, and the ones that were out there, the good ones get snapped up right away. Yeah, that's what I heard. I mean, the people at work were saying, like, they had occasionally spotted something really good. Like, oh, I saw this laptop on sale for $150. I'm like, did you get one? They're like, oh, no, it sold out in, like, six minutes. <laughs> so... There were deals out there to be had, but I think the vast majority of what Amazon was giving screen space to is not good at all. And I never saw a single board game on sale that wasn't Hasbro something. Pointing. Yeah, there was a thread about a mile deep that was talking about how this was going to be the second coming of board game purchasing. And everyone was chatting about it for weeks in advance. And when it came up, it was just a collected meh or just like shocked that there was absolutely nothing there at all and people were reporting back in like you would thought it was just like the apocalypse (laughs) you know like (laughs) there's nothing here it's over the end of days and you're like ah all right well that's disappointing (laughs) stragglers returning from the battle and defeat yes definitely that was the mood yeah you feel double bad though because you know some of these people stayed up until three o'clock in the morning and we're like, wait a second, this is all garbage. Oh, God. So. It's, games are not a power category on Amazon. That's a shame. Let's see, among good news is games. We'll talk about some positive things. I, I know everyone wants to talk about Warhammer's new Age of Sigmar, but I'm going to save that. I'm going to tease you for the, the end on that one. Wizards of the Coast, however, released uh, a new app or new improved, depending on how you want to call it, called Magic Duels. It's free. It's based on the upcoming Magic Origins block. Um, Anthony, did you check it out already? I did, yeah, because here's the thing about Wizards is in the past few years, they've released a different app every year, and it was expensive. You'd spend, I can't remember the exact amount, it was like 15 or $20 for this app, Wow! and it would only be for the one year, and the cards would often be a little bit out of date, and the game itself was well implemented, but the fact you had to keep updating it and I'm sure for a regular Magic player, this was like pennies in a bucket. But for somebody who doesn't actually play Magic in physical form anymore, it was always frustrating. And I haven't really bought the last two years' versions of this. But this new one is a persistent client. So they're saying they're going to keep updating the exact same client every year. And it's free. So there's no more ridiculous charges every year for the new app. And right out of the gate, it had the brand new block in it. In fact, this app came out last week, and the new block just came out today as we're recording so people got access to the new cards early if they downloaded the app right away and that means that means they're going in the right direction that's that's what you should be doing and if you want people to buy your cards give them a taste just a little taste well you know their uh, their sales have been continue to be so strong why would they worry about an app hurting their sales um i'm sure it won't it may it may reach out to some people who've never sat down at a table to play and introduce the game to them. Yeah, I think it's a different audience, to be honest. I think the app uh, speaks to people like me who maybe played the physical game 10 or 15 years ago, and I'm not going to go out and buy a box of boosters anymore. I can't afford it, but also, who would I play with? But I do enjoy the game. I used to enjoy the game a lot, so downloading a free app and playing it 
on the train or something, I'll absolutely do that. How's the AI? It is better. It wasn't horrible, horrible in the past, but it wasn't great. But this year is definitely better. So they've improved a lot in this app. Well, I thought that's why it might be worth talking about in the news segment instead of the reviews because it's it's big news to come out with a really strong app like that to reach out to new people, new players. Now compare that with another company that has made an attempt to simplify their game and reach out to a new audience. One certain company called Games Workshop and their new Warhammer set of rules called Age of Sigmar. They're trying to simplify it and open it up to a new audience. So the question is, are we that audience? Let's start with the fact that there's nothing there for experienced Warhammer players. You guys were telling me about a, uh, a YouTube video you saw from from one of their longtime fans when this Age of Sigmar set came out. Yeah, so Dave actually shot this video over to us earlier this week and it was a it was a gamer who had invested heavily into uh the uh the previous Warhammer editions and just felt kind of betrayed that Games Workshop was basically throwing that old system under the bus for this new one and simplifying the rules. Um so it was a long ranting video and you know, done in protest of the new rule set. A couple different ways you could take this, but in the end, he basically destroys these models that he spent all this money on, but also time painting. It was, to me, as a gamer and a painter of miniatures, it was kind of sad. I know where he's coming from, but at the same time, I'm like, I would take those, dude. I'll, <laughs> I'll take them off your hands if you really don't want them anymore. In protest, of course. Sacrilegious. The yeah. burn of the the, the um, owner of the local game store here. Uh, in Bennington, uh, made the comment that they probably did this. They probably switched over to Age of Sigmar because the people who have already been their long-term fans have already bought everything they're going to buy. They've sunk thousands of dollars into it. And they may have figured that that market is tapped out. Hmm. Might as well go for a new market, uh, bring some new people in. Do you think that is a viable marketing strategy to like give the finger to your old supporters while looking for new ones? I think we've seen this from the board game side with Game of Thrones, the living card game, where they just retired pretty much everything they had put out originally to allow new gamers to kind of jump into the meta. And I know from playing Star Trek Attack Wing, not too long ago, they retired a lot of the tournament special cards and special abilities and just to kind of restart again and to kind of put in into um, play a format which things will come out, they'll be used in play, and then retire, just like Magic does that now. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, having been around war gamers for a very long time when you go to the game store, I've always had the utmost respect for them because this is a lifestyle game, and I can appreciate how hurt someone must be because... It's a significant financial investment. It's a significant time investment, not just the painting, but learning all the rules, having all these measurements and rules and buildings. It's just, it's such a huge investment of time, money, and heart and soul. And then for some company that you've supported for so many years ago, you know, everything you bought and everything you did, yeah, we're getting rid of that. So, Mm. I mean, I appreciate that. And, it's because of that that I've never gotten involved with it because it just seems so enormous and so dangerous. And I guess it actually, in fact, turned out to be because 
it does break your heart where, you know, those figures, that army is so much of who you are in a social sense and now it's gone. So, yeah. There's a there's a big difference between retiring and rebooting. I mean, it it doesn't it, it, that's what they've done is reboot. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't keep you from playing with what you have and using the rule set that you have, but so much of that game is tournament play. And I can understand if you've, you know, memorized all these rule books in order to play the game and now everything is different. I mean, I understand the company's point of view. They need to make money because they are a business. But at the same time, that's a bitter pill. And it was disappointing and sad to see that video and watch that person burn all his figures in his game. I appreciate it. But, man, that was hard. I mean, as a, as a fellow gamer, you really could feel that guy's pain. Yeah. It, one of the commenters I read mentioned that um, in the past, you could go anywhere. You could go to any store, to any tournament, anywhere, and you knew what you were getting into, what you were walking into. You, it was a, you knew the rule set, and nothing changed. And now, you can't go from store to store without wondering, well, what's it going to be like here? What, what, what are we doing? Because there's going to be there's the ability to crossovers uh, with different games. One person put it like square bases and round bases in the same game. Sure. Um, it. They're, they feel cast adrift at sea. Yeah, like I said, since it's a business, it's a hard trade-off for them because they want to bring new people and he'll spend money. And the hardcore original gamers are probably not going to buy new things because their army's complete or maybe no. buy a couple of more things. So do you stay true and loyal to your fans even though it won't make you more money? Or do you throw them out the window and bring in some new players? And I think what it comes down to is they could have just created a whole new universe, but in the end, it comes down to they invested in that IP, and that IP is what's making the money, and they will do whatever they want with their IP. And as we talked about weeks and weeks, you know, ago, you know, it all comes down to the IP when it comes to gaming. I think of how Dungeons and Dragons, uh, how that was handled, the new edition, which seemed to reset a lot of things, but. Everything else stayed current. It, it's not like, okay, this is how we're doing it from now on. Hey, if you want to stay with uh, three, if you want to stay with four, that's fine. You know, D&D can support all the different editions. Yeah, but the financial investment is different on that level, too. I mean, you are buying books, you are buying miniatures, but not not nearly the same level as a miniature gamer. Yeah, yeah nothing really compares with like a game like Warhammer, because it's not even... The miniatures are expensive, but you could probably find another lifestyle game to compare it to. Like if you'd bought every single chapter pack for Game of Thrones, maybe comparable to different armies. But then there's the paint and the time it takes to the paint that stuff. Yeah, that's not only a money investment, but a time investment. Mm-hmm. It's 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 above and beyond any other investment you can make in gaming. And I can understand where people come from because. To me, it'd be like taking my entire board game collection and somehow negating all of it, which wow. thankfully is not possible. But like, if that happened, I would be pretty upset. So, I understand. <sighs> well, the more the more you guys talk, I, I can see where that guy on YouTube, uh, where he was coming from. Definitely the frustration he had. One final comment I wanted to read and see if you guys agree with it. One guy wrote, it seems like Games Workshop is trying to cater to an audience that just isn't interested in the big expensive war game, 
while still trying to be an expensive war game. So do you think, they, are they going to get enough of an audience out of this change to justify ticking off all their regulars, all their long-term fans? It's going to be hard to tell. That you know, I think they're going to have a problem know. because I think financially one of the issues that Magic is dealing with is that a lot of board game stores are just closing. They just financially can't keep up that type of business structure where they have to sell games and cards and things for a living. And now you see these board game cafes kind of pop up where it's about selling food and drink and there's games on the side. So for a Warhammer player, they're probably not going to have the space at a board game cafe. So I'm sure the financial difficulties are coming from that as well. But this is not going to solve it. I can't. I can't imagine this solving it. No. 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 And then there's also the issue of, uh, you know, 20 years ago, Warhammer didn't have a ton of competition. It had like strict military combat games to compete with, and that was about it. And so, if you liked the fantasy theme better, you had Warhammer, and that was it. And now you have Privateer Press with uh, all their games, and you have board games with all their miniatures that can kind of compete on a much smaller scale. Sure. You have Attack Wing and X Wing and uh, D and D Attack Wing. You have Dice Master. Like all these different types of lifestyle games, there's so many options that you can kind of fit one to your personality and your likes. You don't have to play Warhammer, and they're all cheaper. They're yeah. all cheaper. Warhammer is the most expensive game out there in this field. So, unless you really like Warhammer, and like you said, Drew, those that audience is getting smaller because those people already bought all their stuff. Yeah. Um, and they just alienated those people. I, it's it's a tough business model to maintain at that price level. Well, Games Workshop has been around for a long time, hoping that they're smart enough to to make changes quickly. If uh, if that's where the market's going, they, this may not work out for them. I don't see it, it's not going to bring me in as a new player simply because of the cost. You know, I'm, I'm interested. I, it's going to make me more likely to walk over to the table and see what's going on because I think I could grasp it better. But there's no inducement for me to start investing in it, none at all. And one more game company I want to talk about, our old, old friend, our beloved friend Hasbro. Um, they're making some changes to modernize. Uh, what they're doing is divesting themselves of all of their printing facilities. I think they just had two left, and they sold them off to Cartamundi, a Big, big uh, manufacturer of games and playing cards. World's leading producer of playing cards. But they sold off, uh, one of the places they sold off was in East Longmeadow. It's uh, an historic factory, actually. It was Milton Bradley's since the 60s. Spent a lot of years in Massachusetts, so I knew quite a bit about um, about that company and its role there in Springfield and East Longmeadow. But that's gone. One more bright, shining light from the hobby's past has been snuffed out. Now, Hasbro is still creating games. They're just not printing them anymore. But Cardamundi definitely has a reason for expanding their printing facilities. Cardamundi is, you know, they've they've worked on uh, the early editions of the Magic the Gathering. I think they work on a lot of the cards now. So the kind, the style of card that we use basically in CCGs and LCGs now, that's, that's what they put together. Um, a lot of different people go different places now, but it's such a big company that they print so much stuff that probably in your collection you have a lot of Cardamundi printed products. So you can get why they need more more facilities. They're just ramping up. What what got me was Hasbro's 
uh, how they explained getting rid of their own production facilities. Um, and I want to read um, a couple lines from their press release. Uh, they say, I quote, the divestiture is in line with Hasbro's mission of building larger, more global brands. Hasbro will continue to invest resources in areas that will maximize the value of the company's brands globally. The sale of these facilities will have no impact to Hasbro's commitment to the games category, and the company will continue to invest in gaming. Now, doesn't that sound like a company that gamers can just take into their hearts? Doesn't that give you warm fuzzies? <laughs> Dollar sign. <laughs> yeah, that's all I'm seeing. There's no room on the game board to put the the designer's name. Just enough room to put their brand on. Anyway, I wanted to end up with something positive and interesting, a little bit of trivia that maybe you guys didn't know about since we talked about Games Workshop and we talked about Milton Bradley. Did you know that back in the 80s and 90s, Games Workshop partnered with Milton Bradley slash Hasbro to create a series of games that were developed in their Games Workshop, foremost of which is Hero Quest. So there's your trivia for today. Nice. A little bit of news. They, they got together and created Hero Quest. Those were glorious days way back when. Both of them have come a long way since. Let's just keep thinking about the good times, shall we? That <laughs> is what we got for News from the Tabletop. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much, but maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe you might need the... So, Anthony, what have you been looking at this week that you absolutely positively gotta have? Alright, so... Gen Con's in two weeks, and there are a couple of games that are on my radar, and I'll probably talk about those more next week. So this week I'm talking more about games that I actually already have in my hands and I just really want to play, and that I picked up because of a certain disorder related to acquiring <laughs> certain types of cardboard. I don't know what you call it, but um, the first of those is The Voyages of Marco Polo. This is a, a new game that just came through from Z-Man, I believe, here in the U.S., and it's from the two designers of Zulkin. So that caught my eye. And then the description I saw on Board Game Geek was Kingsburg meets Terra Mystica. And I was like, I need to own this game. So I, I did pick it up. I've yet to actually get a chance to play it. So that's not always a good sign when you buy a game before <laughs> you played it. But the reading through the rules, kind of running through it a little bit on my own to see what it looks like. This looks like a very, very interesting game. Everything I've read says it doesn't do anything monumental or mind-breaking. There's nothing here that's, you know, bending the definition of board games. It just takes a couple of really cool mechanics and does them very well. It's dice rolling with worker placement, variable player powers. You're building roots on this board so you can move between these different areas and uh, build out your trade network. So it's combining a lot of different elements of these types of games. And it just looks really cool. I don't know. It's, nice. I really want to play it. And I just honestly, I haven't gotten anything to the table since I picked it up. Um, if I do have a game day or a game night, this will be the first one I bring out. It's relatively simple looking. I ran through it real quick solo and it, uh, it's, everything runs really smoothly. So it just recently came out. I know it's available. If you have played it, please let me know how awesome it is. Hopefully it's awesome because I already paid for it. <laughs> and I do like the theme. It's it's that uh, kind of 
crossover between trading in the Mediterranean and the Far East travel and mysteries of, you know, going off into an unknown land. And I always like that as a theme. So I'm excited for this one, even though I have yet to actually put it to the table. But I have a feeling it's going to be right up my alley. It's like the perfect mix of the different types of mechanics I really like. So you were having the cardboard sweats over this. You had to pick it up. Was it so bad that you picked it up full for full price? It might have been. Okay. Although I did have credit at said store. Okay. So I justified it a little. Okay. So that that's how strong that acquisition disorder was that you actually paid full price for it. I did. And okay. it's always frustrating when you do that and then don't actually play it for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so you're like, I could have just waited. I could have ordered it. It would have been here the same amount of time, but... It's it's okay. It's punched. It's now. You know, I can play it. <laughs> hey, look, punching a game is very therapeutic. It's you know, you own the game now. It's yours. It's marked. It's there. It's fine. You can kind of settle down. You could sleep at night again, right? Yeah, <laughs> punching a game is by far. It's it's one of my top like top four things to do in life. Sure, it's up there like hugging my children. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you don't mix those two things up, like you hug your game and punch your children. That would be really bad. <laughs> oh my god, my son! When I was punching this one, he was he was still awake, and he came bolting across the house. He's like, "What are you doing?" With this big grin <laughs> on his face, and he helped me punch the game because he's like, "I have to do that." It kind it's- of reminds me of like picking apples at an orchard. You're actually paying to do some manual labor in order to obtain the actual product you want so it's really kind of like almost a first world problem it's like oh look something that's not assembled so let me assemble it oh this is so awesome assembling this (laughs) i know and for me it goes even further like i like punching games i like gluing together miniatures i like painting the miniatures i'm like the only guy on the planet who likes all these things all right uh and I'm like, I will combine all of my game pieces. Bring, Give me a giant box of plastic. I will build the game from scratch. <laughs> well, we'll actually talk about that a little bit more in our feature review. But yeah, I'm there right down there with you. So for my acquisition to Sora this week, I'm going to talk about something relative to board gaming. It's a current Kickstarter that's out there right now. And going back to my kick in the habit days, I want to talk about cardboard clothing. Apparel for the Modern Board Gamer by Justin Schaefer. His campaign ends Wednesday, July 29, 2015. Now, cardboard clothing is actually t-shirts and various clothing, including ties, your regular straight long ties, your bow ties, and also coming up soon as far as his campaign is unlocking, there's also going to be long sleeve shirts and hoodies. Now, you've probably got a ton of this stuff because you're a good geek like the rest of us, and you got those shirts for all of the great sci fi and fantasy kind of themes. But these shirts and various clothing is specifically about board gaming. So, for example, there is a longest root shirt that actually looks like a New York subway sign that says Seattle to New York and then it has in circles in the colors, the yellow colors TTR, so for Ticket to Ride and then below it it has the number 22 or 2 and 2, so because if you're a Ticket to Ride fan, you know that's the longest route, you know that's 22 points 
And that's obvious to me and you and to every other gamer. But everybody else on the planet is going to look at that shirt and go, oh, that's kind of weird. Why would they have a subway station shirt? But all right. But this has a large number of different game-related shirts. So there's a Seven Wonders. There is a Pandemic shirt. There is a Uwe Rosenberg Agricola shirt with the clay oven bakehouse. Now, you have to be an Agricola fan to know what that means. So, there is a Power Grid shirt that looks like the GE symbol. There's a Meeple shirt, and then there's kind of a couple hipster shirts with a kind of traditional hipster mustache and beard. There's a Coexist shirt with all the different type of gaming clubs kind of stuck together. And my favorite, which is there are three shirts which is your favorite designer. So there's Feld. There's literally a Feld shirt. This is Feld is my homeboy. There's an Uwe Rosenberg shirt. Uwe is my homeboy. And there's a Vlada Shavalta shirt because Vlada is my homeboy. So there are three shirts like that. And then there's Meeple Ties, which are pretty cool. So the campaign's running right now. And what's really cool about this campaign is as they reach their stretch goals, they're opening up new designs and taking polls to see what people are looking for. So if you do not have board gaming shirts, I would highly recommend going out and checking out this campaign right now. By the time you're hearing this podcast, there should be about a week left for this campaign. And right now they're about $10,000, so they're unlocking stretch goals left and right. I got a chance to very briefly speak to Justin and seems like a very cool guy. They've completed multiple campaigns, so you can trust that they actually know how to get things out. The company that's producing the shirts is an actual legit company in Colorado. So this is all in the up and up. This is a campaign you should back. And as Kicking the Habit would say, kick this campaign off. I recommend this to everybody but my immediate friends because I already backed the highest level campaign pledge level because all my friends will be getting shirts added to their Christmas presents. Anthony's not listening to this, right, Anthony? You're not listening to this. <laughs> Wait, what? I'm not supposed to back You're this? not supposed to back this because you're going to get some. All right. You can back <laughs> it. You're just going to get two of everything now. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. So at their that power grid shirt is awesome. Yeah. For at their $175 pledge goal, which is the ultimate wardrobe, which I backed which is a $290 value, one of every shirt design in the sizes of your choice, as well as two ties of your choice in the vintage maroon or classic black pattern. Pledge level also includes all the stretch goals. So there'll be additional things like coasters and stickers and things like that. So check it out, back this campaign, and I think you'll be greatly satisfied. And once again, like other things I've talked about on Kicking the Habit, like the calendars and their posters and things this is really a great way to kind of promote the hobby to people that might not think that board gaming is the hippest coolest thing on the planet but they take a look at some of these shirts and now you got a conversation going now you could break the game out and now they're into the game and you know now they want a shirt so it works really well and uh you still have time jump on this campaign that's awesome. I didn't know about this one. Those are really cool shirts. Aren't they? They're awesome. Because Feld is my homeboy. He is my homeboy, too. I think everyone should have a Feld is my homeboy shirt. Right? I know. <laughs> 
and it's it's cool because it's like one of these little things it's like a inside joke where everyone at a board game store is going to totally get it and then nobody else <laughs> exactly and they'll think you're just a hipster and you're like no i'm a nerd that's right it's like <laughs> vlata who is this vlata like don't worry about it you don't if you if you don't know who vlata is i don't want to talk to you man i'm just saying <laughs> So that's everything for our acquisition disorders. And now, At the Table with BGA. Each and every week when we do our At the Table segment, we want to let you know which games are worthy of your hard-earned cash, which games are worthy of a sit-down-and-play, which games you should kind of dodge because they're not really great games, and which games absolutely, positively need to be burned out of our industry because they're not helping anybody. So with that said, let's get on to the reviews. We talked last week a little bit about Dexcon and all the fun we had there and all the games we played. And Dave brought a bunch of big stuff. Uh, we He talked a little bit about Dominant Species. and We got a lot of cool stuff to the table, and for me it was like, light years beyond my usual gaming night so i had a ton of fun one of the games we got to the table was one that i've kind of eyeballed in dave's collection a couple times and we never really got it out but we finally did and that was stefan field's notre dame so this one is super out of print so that's the reason why i haven't played it to date and dave's the only guy i know who has it but for a feld game it's actually very as daniel would say charismatic to look at on the table it has this very cool board that's modular that adjusts to how many players there are basically there's like a quadrant of the city for each player and they all kind of come together to the middle where the cathedral of notre dame is located and what you're going to be doing is drafting cards each turn pulling from your own deck of cards but then drafting with other people and playing two actions from all the cards you pull out of that draft and those actions will be a number of different options on your own board i think there's seven total And some of them let you take more workers. Some of them let you take more uh, these markers. Some of them let you reduce the track so that the rats that are overrunning your part of the city get reduced. Because if the rat track fills up, then you get penalized in a pretty significant way. Some of them let you get victory points. There's money on there. There's a park that kind of lets you build towards a multiplier. So you get extra points every time you score. So there's a lot of different things you can do. And like a true Feld, there's a lot of different ways to score points. Money is super limited in this game, so getting a little extra money early is important. But really, everything is limited. Uh, I think the final score in this was in the low 30s. So you don't get a ton of points. You don't have a ton of cash. You don't have a ton of workers, nor do you have a ton of these anything else in the game. And there's plenty of rats. So you have to find a way to kind of balance it all out so that at every point in time you have just enough of what you need to do what you need. Because the way you're going to score the most points, probably, is going to Notre Dame. And you're going to get points for going there initially if you pay the cash that goes with it. But you're also going to get points if, based on the number of people who are there at the end of every round, and there are three rounds, you're going to divide 12 by the number of total workers that are on that space. And the more people you have, the higher percentage you get of that for the points. So it's a very interesting game. There's a little bit of uh, travel involved, too. You can move your cart around the board and pick up some of these bonus tokens that are located around the board. 
not only from your own section of the city, but from the other sections of the city. There's a lot you can do. It's fun to look at. The graphic design on this is very good. I was actually very impressed because most Stefan Feld games fall on one side or another, and the majority fall on the one side where they're not super charismatic to look at. But this one definitely was. And I could feel the theme come through too, which is another thing that you don't always get in his games. Even when the games are very good, the theme's not always super strong. So had fun with it. It was a little late in the night, so it's definitely a game I want to get to the table again because I don't feel like I quite had a firm grasp on what my strategy was until the second or third round. But I had fun with it. It was pretty quick. I think we played it in a little over an hour, and it was unique. And that's the most important part. It's very unique because it drew in the card drafting mechanic and the moving your card around the board, and you had your special friend who kind of moved wherever and acted as a wild card, and you're just balancing all these different things. And it even had the mechanic I don't really like a lot in Euros where you have to negate the negative of the rats, and I didn't mind that too much because it was something you could manage pretty effectively. And if it hit you, it didn't make you lose the game instantly. So that was a good thing, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a really interesting game, and I'm so glad that Dave brought this out because I get to check off another Feld game from the long, long Feld list. But it's a very unusual-looking game, as you mentioned, Anthony, the way it kind of lays out. I don't think I've seen anything like that before. Have you? No, this was super unique to me. And I know we played with the full five players, so we got to play the full board if you see the the pictures of it. But I know you can kind of tweak it based on the number of players. Mm -hmm to match these up in all these different configurations. So it's it's really unique in that way. And then you have some variable kind of aspects to the game where you have these tokens that you place out and you're not too sure where they're going to be, but once they kind of flip over, you can kind of run around and pick up those bonuses, but you can also pick up bonuses from other players. So you have to kind of pick up one of each before you can go back to another set of that same color That was an interesting dynamic. Then you have this card drafting where you get to pick from your little deck three cards, pick one, and then pass them around. And, man, that was kind of weird and different, too. Like, I have my own cards. I want to play these cards. But then I'm going to get other cards, and then I can pick from those cards. But those cards are also the cards that are in my deck. So... I'm not sure the mechanics or the math behind that whole thing, but it was weird weird and different. And I don't know. What do you think about that? I thought it was interesting because what it ends up doing is you have so few options and yet you have so many options. And it's like the same options too. Yeah, and it rotates through. It's funny because like any good euro you can choose early on to just go for points and sure. you'll probably be on your own and you could stock up on a bunch of points early which is what i did actually i scored maybe 15 points in the first round and everybody else had like two or three yeah but then i scored zero in the second round because i had basically ignored the rats the entire time mm. so i had to spend that whole round taking those cards to mitigate rats sure. and that meant i kept passing the good cards to my left and michael kept getting all those good cards and he scored like 20 points in the second <laughs> round off those cards I gave him. Sure. And then in the third round, it's a little more balanced because everybody was back in the same plane. You really can't do both. Like, I like a game where you have good decisions to make. Sure. And in this game, you do, but there's a consequence of every decision you make. If you go for the good thing, it's probably going to hurt you a little. If you try to help yourself and, you know, pe- catch up from the rats or build up on some cash, then you're not scoring points. So 
you always have to balance it out. And I liked that. It was just the right amount of tension for me. Sure. But not so much that I felt like the game was stressing me out for no reason. Yeah, it did seem like the options were open to you. So when you got that hand of cards, you could say, well, I could kind of really focus on one spot and just put a lot of guys there because each of the spots benefited by having a lot of little cubes on it. So the more you could fill up an area with cubes, when you go back there again, it scores multiple points or a lot of money or benefits you greatly as far as taking care of the rats in the game. Or you could run towards the Notre Dame Cathedral and that scores you points. So there was a lot of different ways to play. And then the special unique characters that would come out that would determine how many rats would come out and would give you an opportunity to buy their special ability. That was pretty dynamic. I think this game would really benefit for multiple plays just to try out all the different strategies. It's not a heavy game. It's a light to medium euro, but it does have some surprising complexity to it. And for me, if this game comes into print at some point, it's a buy for me. What about for you? It's definitely a play. I'd want to play it a couple more times before I put it on my buy list. The problem is how hard it is to play. I mean, again, Dave's copy is the only one I've ever seen. Uh, It's out of print. I don't think I've ever seen a used copy lying around. So if I saw a used copy for a reasonable price, I might actually pick it up just because I think that would be the only way to get it out, guaranteed to play. But for me, it is unique in, in this category. There's a lot of light to medium weight euros, but none that quite do it this way. So I liked it a lot. I want to play it a couple more times just to get a feel for how the replayability uh, pans out. But it was very strong. All right. So a game that I was able to get to the table this week is called Deep Sea Adventure. And this came out in 2014. Now, what's interesting about this game, and probably the reason why you haven't heard about this yet, is because this game is from Japan. This is a straight export from them. And it's brought to us by Oink Games. Now, you're not going to find this in Miniature Market or Barnes & Noble or Cool Stuff, Inc. You, but the good news is you can find this game on the Board Game Geek Store. Now, they have a number of these small, quick-playing games. Now, this game in particular, Deep Sea Adventure, was brought to us by our friend Chris, who was on the podcast previously. And it's basically a press-your-luck game. So this game is one of these little small games and basically what you're going to be doing is be a deep sea adventurer that's going to journey down into the depths of the ocean and by doing that you're going to be able to pick up treasure and get back to your submarine hopefully quick enough before the air runs out. So as I said since it's a press your luck game you are going to start down this path of little tokens now the tokens themselves increase by value now you won't know how valuable a token is until you flip it over so as you're diving deep into the ocean you start off with the kind of ones now the ones could be from zero to like two points But as you go even deeper, then you have the threes and fours and the fives and sevens and the tens and twelves. But the problem is there's a marker on the submarine that is accounting for your air. So as you dive deep and you start to pick up treasure, 
the oxygen is starting to count down. Doesn't seem like a big problem, but it's counting down based upon everyone's dive. So you have to really decide how deep you're going to go in order to pick up treasure and get back to the submarine. Now, that seems okay because you have these two dies that will be able to get you down and get you back on as far as a roll and move type of mechanic. But for every treasure that you pick up, it's minus one to your roll. So now you do have these two D6s, but it's only going to be a one, two, or three on each of these dies. So it is completely possible that you pick up a treasure that's worth a lot of points, but are not able to get back to the submarine in time. And there is a way in which if you pick up a lot of treasure and you get back to the submarine, or if you dive a lot, you'll be able to run out the oxygen against the other players. So there's a little screw your neighbor kind of mechanic here. It's a quick game. I enjoyed the game. I was surprised. I thought this was going to be kind of a throwaway game. But the graphic design is very minimalistic, but nonetheless very stylish and interesting. Chris, who purchased the game, was happy that he did. Dave, our you know, in-house hardcore Euro, wanted to play this game right away. And we all enjoyed this game. So Deep Sea Adventure gets a buy from me. It's $22 on Board Game Geek. It's well worth it. It's a quick press-your-luck game that everyone could get into right away. And it's something you should check out. All right. Well, I had not heard of that at all before today, and now I am uh, might check that out. Yeah, I would definitely recommend checking out Board Game Geek for all their Oink games because right now that's the only place that they're they're selling them. And it's, you know, it's a quick little filler game. It's a, kind of a lot of fun. So if I do see this, I'm going to pick it up, and uh, you should too. Yeah. I like the uh, yellow submarine style I know. graphic on the cover. <laughs> It's great. Hear ye, hear ye. The Board Gamers Anonymous Court is now in session. All judgments made by the Board Gamers Anonymous Court are binding. Your get-out-of-free-jail card is not valid here. So for this week's feature review, we are bringing back BGA Court. Because we have the most pertinent issue. Do you chrome out, sleeve your games? Or, if you want to do it the right way, do you go original, clean, raw? How do you play your games? Do you spend the extra money? Or do you play with it as it is? So for this BGA court, Anthony is going to take the wrong position of totally chroming out his games. And I am going to take the right position which is stay with the tried-and-true original game as the designers intended. Right, Anthony? I feel like I lost the coin toss on the intro here. It's not cool. That's what happens when you host the podcast. Yeah, I know. It's not cool. It's completely unbiased. It's not my fault. Bias the jury. All right, so let's actually take a fair and balanced view. And by fair and balanced, I mean a really fair and balanced and not like what other people mean by fair and balanced. (laughs) So Anthony, you know, when we got into board gaming, you know, some of the reasons for it was we love all of the stuff that comes with gaming and all the little physical bits and pieces. And we talked a little bit about this in previous episodes where there are gimmicks to games where there's really cool stuff to games. But, you know, once in a while... Some gamers like to kind of take it up a notch 
and really do a little bit more about their games. So, you know, bring some extras to the game, protect the game. As far as that's concerned, in a nutshell, what is it about that extra level that you bring to a game that really speaks to you? It's a hard point to make because I understand when people don't want to do it. What I don't understand is when people like look at me like, I've done something wrong or harmed the game in some way. I'm like, it's not your money. It's my money, and it makes the game a better experience. Ask Dave. Um. <laughs> well, I think I think you had that moment where you broke out that Jamie Stegmeier treasure chest, and he looked at you like you had done some sacrilege there. But I think you converted him, man. I think you actually did. Yes. I ameritrashed up that Euro, and it worked. <laughs> that was one of my favorite gaming moments of the last like two months. And I was like, yes. Look at all these amazing bits making your Euro less boring to look at. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, blinging out a game, chroming out a game, for me, it's it just adds more to the experience. It makes you feel more into the experience, but it also makes you feel more invested in the game. I'm a collector, flitted between different hobbies over the years. I played Magic for a few years. I collected baseball cards. And every time I had a hobby, I would find all the different ways I could to get involved in it. I would write about it. I would start a podcast, apparently. <laughs> I would uh, get sleeves for things, buy price guides, go to events, whatever it is. And not not even to like an obscene degree, like just, you know, with whatever spare time I had. Um, and for board games, to me, that's going the little extra bit and buying that extra stuff. Now, I don't sleeve every game I own, not even close. That would be a fortune. Nor do I buy some ungodly number of tokens or trays or metal coins. But when a game really deserves it, in my mind, I absolutely want to make it the best experience possible. So I have a handful of sleeved games. I have that treasure chest, the first one from Stonemaier Games, which I've only gotten out a couple times, but both times it was awesome so it was 100% worth it already and I, I did back the new ones too so I'm excited for those to come I have picked up a couple of inserts and trays to help organize stuff I have I don't have any metal coins actually that's like one of the big metal big huge gaps in my uh, chrome collection but there's so much cool stuff you can do to the game and don't even get me started on miniatures and painting those but I feel like that could be a separate episode just making it the best experience possible that part of it is fun for me sitting down i enjoy sleeving cards hmm. just to, putting that out there so you understand where <laughs> i'm coming from i enjoy sleeving cards and i enjoy gluing together miniatures and painting them so i'm that guy well that's a pretty convincing case all right well i i, I guess i have my uh opening statement here to sleeve or not to sleeve that is the question whether it is cheaper in the wallet to suffer the shuffles and drafting of outrageous gamers or to place plastic against a sea of sweaty hands and by sleeving save them. I say no, Anthony. I say no to you. I say no to all your fancy doodads and yin-yangs and knickknacks. I say when you get a game, it's meant to be in that purest form you're supposed to touch the card, you know, the linen feel of that texture, whatever tokens. And, you know, being a Felt fan, sometimes it's not quality stuff. You know, when you're playing with those pieces, those are the pieces that the designer, the publisher intended for you to have. And to swap out 
that money, those tokens, those miniatures with something else loses what the designer had intended for you to experience. Now you're playing some sort of mishmash, smash up and all apologies to Drew who's preparing for the final round. It's something different. It's no longer the game that you are meant to play. And if you're not playing the game, if you're not physical with the components that are meant to be in the game, and, you know, as you said, like, if you swap out the money, you bring in some metal money that's not the same artwork that, that you know, fits with the rest of the game, I don't know if you're really playing the game anymore. You're actually doing something... I don't know. It feels wrong on some level. I don't know. It seems like... I don't know, though. Like, And I think this is the thing that people argue on. is like, well, I don't care if people smudge up my cards. If I play the game so much it's worn out, I'll buy a new one. I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's great. You know, If you play a game so many times that the cards are destroyed, buy a new one. Um, but to me, that's not the only reason you chrome out the game. You say that if you take away the components that the designer and the publisher intended, you're ruining the game, but... I bet if you ask most of these designers, they'd be totally happy to include better components than those awful little leftover Catan pieces. It's just a matter of cost and or maybe the publisher's availability or the scale of the production. So making it look better, finding ways to kind of enhance it. I don't feel like that changes the game. I think it just makes it more my own. You know, it's my game now. This is my copy of this game. Now it's unique. I've made it my own, and nobody else has this. Because <laughs> I spend all the time painting it. You can't have it. <laughs> well, I wonder, as far as, especially Euro games, where the th- theme is very thin to begin with, if we start swapping out the components, if we start pulling the game apart and bringing other things in, even if it's a generic component that can match multiple games, don't we lose somewhat of the feel of the game if this is the same money we're playing in multiple games? I mean, I don't think that's a bad point. I mean, it, it depends on the money. You know, if you just have generic metal coins and you use them in, like, let's say, Power Grid. Power Grid's a great example because the money in that game is horrible. It's paper. <laughs> and if you play that game for more than a dozen times, you're going to start bending and shuffling. It's going to get lost. I found a piece of Power Grid money under my couch the other day that was folded in half and was one piece of money and i was super mad (laughs) but if it had been a token or a piece of plastic it would have been in perfectly fine condition under the couch to be fair on that one when you get a deluxe version of a game when the publisher releases it and they fix something like that like the deluxe power grid has plastic money now then you know that wasn't the initial intention sure and they realize that it was a problem so I don't think blinging it out if you're fixing problems that have always been there is a problem. If you end up using the same components for every game, I haven't used my treasure chest that much. I don't know if it'll become an issue. But at the same time, with a game like a Euro, I could pull five Euros off my shelf and they probably all use the same components. So I don't think it's that much different than using the same treasure chest components in all five of those games. Mm -hmm. And I know that at some points you do need to sleeve a game or protect the components on some level because there's nothing wrong with a well-worn or well-loved game sometimes especially with some cards and i'm talking to you citadels it's easy and it really shouldn't be easy to mark up the cards and then you're really giving away information so there are some circumstances i'll give you that where if you're not protecting the components well 
it's going to hurt the game because you're not going to have enough money or you're going to give away information or some slight damage actually works against the gameplay. Yeah, totally. Like Games like that are tough. There are other games that I've sleeved cards for different reasons. I sleeved all of my Imperial Settlers cards because I play that game with my son and he likes to shuffle the cards. And I don't want him destroying those cards because it's a hard game to find. There are other games still, like Sentinels of the Multiverse, where the card quality is so bad that you either have to choose to allow them to basically be destroyed and have to buy a new copy in a few months or get the heaviest leaves you can find to keep them from bending i don't know which side of that fence i'd fall on you have sentinels i'm sure yours aren't sleeved but if i bought it i think i'd be torn a little bit yeah and i I think we should talk about sleeving specifically because while money in a game is something that's challenging or resources in a game is a challenging like you said a lot of euro games use the traditional gold wood stone and probably wheat in multiple games and money is often used in certain denominations maybe one threes fives and tens where you can kind of pick up a bunch of money or a bunch of components like you're talking about with the stonemeyer treasure chest when it comes to sleeving sleeving really is its own thing because i talked about this on an earlier episode the first time i played sentinels of the multiverse one person who was playing one of the decks that came back to me the cards started to warp and i know that if and when i do play that game next the game is just heading down a really bad road where those cards will really get worn out rather quickly but yet if i do go ahead and sleeve that entire game sleeving that game is probably going to cost me more than my purchase of that game which was on sale so yeah, I'll still have the sleeves later on if I need to unsleeve the game, but is it worth the time? Is it worth the money? Is it worth the effort to pick up sleeves, even though it's going to save a game, but it's a game that you could pick up later? So I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, like that's. I think that game's a great example, and it's a relatively inexpensive game, so what do you do in that situation i think in a game like sentinels that's going to be in print for a while it's hard to argue to sleeve it but let's say sentinels was a game that came out and did okay but not many people picked up and it hasn't been in print for a year and it still had horrible quality cards i would probably sleeve it because you don't know if you'll be able to find another copy easily enough in this hobby especially so many games become hard to find And even if they reprint it like two, three years down the line, if you really like it, you don't want to wait for that or pay some outrageous eBay fees. So that's a situation in which I would consider sleeving it. Sure. This particular game right now, I really wouldn't worry about it. Sure. But there are a lot of games that I would. So like if I'd gotten a copy of Dead of Winter last Gen Con, I probably would have sleeved part of it just because it was so hard to find. I'm like, if this gets destroyed, I can't play it anymore. (laughs) So games like that, you know, you want to keep take care of. Whereas like a core set for a Fantasy Flight LCG, you could pick up another copy for 20 bucks on Miniature Market. I'm not going to sleeve 350 cards. Sure. You and I in the past have picked up games where literally it costs more to sleeve than to buy another whole game. And usually that's the deck builders where it's just going to be crazy amounts of money. And, and I think we've had several friends of ours, and, and I think Daniel is one of them, with Marvel Legendary, where it's just hundreds of cards. And 
if not hours of sleeving the game, adding to the weight, adding to the bulk. Sometimes even when you sleeve a game, you can't fit it back into the box. And that becomes a challenge too because now you spent all the money that you had purchasing the game, sleeving the game. You spent a lot of time on that and now you can't fit it back in the original kind of setup for the game. Now what do you do? And that adds some problems to the game. Not to mention when you actually have to shuffle a deck and if the sleeves are not cooperative, you're going to have some problems with that too. Yeah, for sure. Like I sleeved Boss Monster uh, when I got it originally. And honestly, for the life of me, I don't remember why I sleeved that game. The card quality is good. And I've played it a decent number of times. But even still, I don't think the cards get that much play. I think I just had some sleeves lying around. And I was really happy to have that game. So I sleeved it up. And they don't fit in the box. So sure, I have that box closed with a rubber band right now. And I, just, I haven't unsleeved them because that's a lot of work in its own right. But it, it becomes an issue. Like once I had sleeved it, I'm like, ugh, I wish I hadn't. And now I'm not going to undo it. But sometimes you don't really have a choice. So it's definitely an issue you have to think about. Like, is it going to fit in the box? Does it really need to be sleeved? Are people going to be annoyed? Is this the kind of game that the cards get shuffled around enough that it even matters? Mm -hmm. Like, if they don't get touched that much, why would I bother to sleeve them? I see your point on the sleeving. It's I definitely have sleeved more games than i would have expected but not as many as i would necessarily like just because of cost Um, i have a box lying around with 900 plus lord of the rings lcg cards in it and i'm not going to sleeve those even though it would look really cool with the (laughs) lord of the rings back sleeves but that's 25 30 dollars of sleeves i'm like "Eh, i'm not spending that much on sleeves sure and we should say too if you are not a hardcore hobby board gamer you may not be aware there are some times i think and i think anthony would agree where sleeving is probably more necessary than not so if you're doing a card drafting game and and by that which i mean you get a deck of cards you you look through the deck as, as far as a small hand is concerned you pull a card out and then you pass that hand around and we talked about this earlier in Notre Dame those cards are going to get handled a lot and another example would be tableau building where you're going to play a card on a table so you are going to actually move that card a lot on the table and if that table isn't perfectly clean or smooth that card's going to get damaged quite quickly So there are situations where the handling of a card, the movement of a card against other surfaces would probably require you to pick up some sort of sleeves. Sleeving is a huge topic that we could spend hours on because trying to find the right size for a certain card, trying to find the right quality, penny sleeves are cheap, but usually they're terrible to handle, whereas... The, the perfect fit, the Fantasy Flight sleeves are very expensive, but sometimes they're worth it, or sometimes they're the only sleeve that's going to fit a certain card size. So it's not like you can pick out one card sleeve and it's going to sleeve all of your cards. Cards really have to match the sleeve perfectly, and that's kind of a troubling situation to go through in order to kind of protect your game. And finally... Let's just give you know a little special asterisk here too. We are absolutely positively not talking about magic. 
because magic cards are very expensive, are very rare, and you got to sleeve that game. So if you do have an out-of-print game, if you do have a rare game, if you do have a collector's edition game, I think that is a special condition. You absolutely positively need to sleeve that game, right, Anthony? I think we agreed on that one, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, if, you're, if your cards are worth money, <laughs> protect them. <laughs> protect the cards! Yeah. <laughs> because I've played games with so many people, and you break out your pristine copy and it's a rare copy or it's a collectible copy or it's a it's a promo that you can't get anywhere else and you see people handling them and you just cringe and you you grind your teeth and they're looking at you like what what's wrong i'm like don't shuffle like that man you're gonna kill my cards so if someone plays your game hopefully they're nice enough to check with you before they shuffle that in a particularly dangerous way so we talked about sleeving and and i mentioned that sometimes it doesn't fit really back into the insert so both faces anthony where the insert's either bad or we can't fit the components back into the game what do you do as far as insert trays plano boxes how do you handle that yeah i think almost universally the inserts in games are bad i can think of one that i like and that's the one for war of the ring and it's a very nicely made insert. Everything fits perfectly into the box. It doesn't shuffle around. There's enough room in there for the expansion once you get it. That's a good insert. Most of them, especially Fantasy Flights with those stupid threefold cardboard things, go straight in the trash because they just they have nice artwork on them, but they basically waste space in the box. Mm. But the problem is once you throw that out, you would just have a bunch of stuff floating around in the box and it's bouncing around and it's going to get beat up and it needs to be bagged um, and then it's disorganized and then sometimes once you bag it it doesn't really fit properly there are some games like caverna or terra mystica that if you don't get them in the box just right the box will not close properly (laughs) there's so many components that are jammed in there so tightly so in those cases especially for euros i know chris you've done this with caverna but we buy plano boxes tackle boxes those are easy to find they're extremely inexpensive the problem is how do you find the right sized one? And then another thing that we actually just learned about when we were at Dexcon from our, our friend that we met there, Michael, is called Gamer Trays yes, or Game Trays. And these are plastic inserts for, I think it's only a small number of board games they work with. So it's Terra Mystica was the one he showed us. And then they also have trays for Euphoria and Brew Crafters and Splendor they have coming soon. And it's just little plastic molded trays that hold a lot of the components. I picked up the Terra Mystica set, and it doesn't hold every component in the game, but it holds all of the cardboard chits and the the terrain tiles and the money and everything else, so all the loose stuff. And the cool thing is when you pull it out of the box, it's already like organized, so you just have it ready to go. And these were fairly inexpensive. On the flip side of that, on the much more expensive side, you have broken tokens stuff, which is all made of wood, and you have to assemble it, and they're really nice, and they smell good. But they're a little more expensive. But I also have one of those I, p- I picked up for my uh, Lord of the Rings LCG just because the cards were floating all over the place and wouldn't actually fit in the plastic bags that I had in there. So I bought one of their uh, LCG box inserts, and it holds the cards just right in a way that the original <laughs> Fantasy Flight insert did not. So there's a lot of options out there, and it really is a matter of whether you need it or not. I, don't, I wouldn't recommend these ever unless you actually can't fit stuff in the box or you bought an expansion and things don't fit in the box. Um, but if you do need them or if you play the game often enough that you need to organize things in that way, they are very helpful. Yeah, I got to go back to my original opinion on this too, which is 
I know this sounds a little bit crazy, but I feel bad about throwing out the insert. I feel like it's still very much a part of the game. It's part of the, how would you say it, the whole package. And I cringe when people bring games to the table that they've disassembled, they threw in some random Plano box, it loses the actual box. You don't see the box anymore. You just see all these Planos kind of pop out, and it really it loses a lot of the feel of the game. I like the box. I like the smell. I like the look of it. I love the cover art. I love pulling the box open. I like seeing the insert. And as you said, Anthony, most of the time these inserts are not great, and sometimes they're bad. And I'm talking to you, Cryptozoke. Your DC deck builders, actually all your deck builders, that is literally the worst insert I've ever seen. I don't know what you were thinking about, but it's terrible. But beyond that, there are some games that do a good job. Abyss was a recent release that had a really great insert. And then there's some of those games, like you mentioned, like Caverna, when you punch everything, even if you don't want to go with a certain Plano box situation... You can't close the box again. The components won't let you do it. So I had to pick up Plano boxes for it. And thankfully, Board Game Geek and its wonderful community is nice enough to actually have a thread that is all about Plano boxes and which Plano boxes go at what games. But sometimes, Anthony, it is expensive especially if you go with the actual Plano boxes because they cost a little bit more than the regular generic ones. And now you're adding, I don't know, $5, 10 $15, maybe even $20 per Plano box. And I know even for me, when I picked up Star Trek Attack Wing, there was this wonderful tackle box that I eyed for the longest time to fit in a vast majority of my components for Attack Wing. And it was costing about $35, 40 bucks. I never was able to pick this up because it was going in and out of stock because so many people were picking it up at the time. And I ended up going with this really generic dollar kind of Plano box setup that worked. Not great, but worked. But uh, it adds a lot of cost to the game. And honestly, publishers, come on, guys. you got to put out a really quality insert. We want to protect our games. We want to hold everything in one spot. We don't want things flying out. I think the worst feeling in the world is when you have to move a box and you hear everything in the box just go, you're like, oh man, (laughs) that was bad because I spent a lot of time putting everything in there. Yeah, Plano boxes are a godsend. It's not just about making your game look great, but it gets everything out to the table and back into the box very quickly. But it is an additional expense that could be easily solved by a quality insert. Yes, I do agree. And it is it is frustrating. I don't like throwing away anything out of that box. But sometimes you just don't have a choice. And it's kind of an addendum to what you're saying. I don't think it's really worth doing all that unless you play the game often. Okay. If you're not going to play the game frequently enough that it actually matters to keep it that organized, I wouldn't go spend a bunch of money on Plano boxes or game trays or broken token pieces that will organize that box because honestly just take the game out when you're going to play it and pull everything out and organize it if it's a game you're going to play every week or two and it has a ton of pieces and the box is a pain to get everything back into and you know you're going to have to do it every now and then totally worth organizing it spending a little bit of extra money the investment levels lower them because you're getting more fun out of the game 
and you're not going to be so frustrated in cleaning it up. Yeah, and I think on that point, too, we mentioned this kind of in and out a little bit. Baggies are a big thing in board gaming, whether it's putting miniatures, putting money, putting tokens, victory points. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't work really well. Sometimes you have to find the appropriate baggie that kind of goes along with it or the certain thickness. I mean... Man, it's 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 it gets a little bit crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And it doesn't help that some publishers are much better than others about giving you enough bags for your game. There's nothing more frustrating than opening a game that has hundreds of components and you get like four bags. Sure. You're like, where am I supposed to put all these? Fantasy Flight's pretty bad about this. You really have to jam stuff in to make them fit in any bags that they give you. If they even give you bags in that game, yeah, most times um, they don't. Yeah, sometimes they don't. And where Z-Man is great, Z-Man is great extra at that. bags. Yeah, so I love having the game in its original state. And if they give me bags to go along with it, I feel like this is gamer, designer, publisher approved. This is how they want to help you kind of manage things. And I like that. I I, I like when a Kickstarter has the bags. And the chrome that they add to the game that's actually meant to be added to the game. It has the the symbols, the logos, it has the the place for everything. And it breaks my heart when there's games like Seven Wonders Babel that no matter what you do, it doesn't fit back in the box right and everything kind of moves around. Or Suburbia, which is a game that I do love, but once you punch the game, there is literally no insert in there. And I commend them again and again on their expansion just being the boards. But once again, I don't know what to do. It. I have Mad King Ludwig kind of just shambled in there. I bagged each and every room and now I don't know what to do with it. And I might have to go with Broken Token or purchase some elaborate Plano box set to kind of fit everything in. Because it's just taking way too long to get that game to the table. And it's not a matter of... You know, bringing that game to the next level, it's just a matter of getting that game to the table. I prefer to get a game, and if I really like it personally, if it's one of my favorites, then I personally will make it the deluxe edition. So tying it all the way back to the beginning and my opening arguments, that's my copy of the game. It's unique. Nobody else has that blinged out version. It almost cheapens it for me if the publisher makes ultimate edition and everybody can go buy it. So are you saying, this is my game, there are many like it, but this is mine? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to stick to the original intent and construction and architecture of the game as much as possible. I don't want to have an interchangeable component. I want to have a component that matches the game. I want to have a theme for that game that plays out in every piece, every chit, even if the chits and pieces are a little bit of lower quality. So whether you sleeve your game up and enjoy the wonderful process of feeling everything is protected and supersized and chromed out and just best it can be, or you enjoy the raw feel of the original game, get out there and game, man, because uh, there's a lot of great things to do with games. And it's sometimes it's not just gaming, and sometimes it's just bringing it up to a next level. It's Restaurant Week in New York City. You may not be familiar with that. That's something very, very special every year in New York where the restaurants have a nice slimmed down, simplified menu that everybody could get for a good, reasonable price. It is something that's done under different names in different cities. 
around the country. So most larger cities have their own version of Restaurant Week where you can sample everybody's fares, everybody's great flavors. So I thought this might be a good week to pick our favorite restaurant and eating games. And I'll give you an example. One of my favorite games is called a la carte. And it's a European game, of course, but from 1989. But it's something that has a lot of legs because the components are are very good. They have some nice um, three-dimensional – what am I – how do I put this? They have some nice three-dimensional pieces, a hot plate that you build and work from, and then you have a miniature pan where you're cooking your dish for the day. And everybody has their own little hot plate and pan. And they're throwing ingredients into the pan to try and get a perfect dish. And you're also trying to sabotage other players, ruin their dishes. And you don't want to overseason. You want to put, don't want to put too much into yours. It's a lot of fun. Anytime you get a game where you have a three-dimensional, a tactile uh, interaction with it, it just uh, ratchets up the fun. I enjoy it. A lot of fun. A la carte. How about you guys? What are your favorite restaurant games? So there's a game that I played at Myriad a couple of years ago that I really enjoyed. And I kind of wish I'd purchased now because I think it's kind of hard to find at this point. Uh, it's called Wasabi. And the goal of the game is you have this board and everybody starts a game with a certain number of tiles. You'll be drawing more. And you're placing different parts of the sushi recipes um, on the board. And you have different recipe cards that you're trying to complete. So... Uh, the game is super quick. It's like 30 to 45 minutes. But you're trying to manage the board against the other players, and you're trying to build off of what they put down to man- to complete your recipes. Um, and at the end of the game, it's, it's all about finishing your recipes, getting bonuses for different combos you put down. And it's super quick. There are different ways to like lay on top of other people's tiles, to move tiles around. But the game's pretty straightforward, and I don't think we ever played for more than 30 to 45 minutes. Two to four players, too, so it's pretty small table space. It was a lot of fun. I kind of wish I owned it at this point. But as, as far as simple, quick set collection and recipe completion, it really feels like you're kind of putting those uh, ingredients out there and trying to build your, uh, your restaurant up as a sushi restaurant. Uh, on this board so it was fun so for me taking a journey down the tokaido road to tokyo you're going to stop at many different inns now when you stop at an inn in tokaido you have an opportunity to purchase a meal now all the meals in tokaido will score you six points but at the end of the game whoever has had the most expensive luxurious meals along the way will score an additional three points But what's really cute and fun about this game is when you do get to the end, and if you get there first, you have the most choices of different entrees. So you could pick up sushi and tofu and miso soup, and the artwork is nice and beautiful, and you get to lay this out on your kind of player area so you can show everyone the outstanding time you have. And just with everything with Tokaido, it really is a luxurious, serene visit. And going to the inns and the restaurants here in the game is such a big part of it. That uh, is our final round for today. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek. Don't forget about our Patreon account. The more you support us, the more we can put out there for you. And especially with Gen Con coming up so close... 
let us know. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be in the area? Do you want to play a game? Do you want to meet for some food? That would be great. So let us know on all of our social media platforms that Daniel has so kindly volunteered Anthony for. And we'll get back to you as soon as possible. And especially, don't forget, we're always taking listener feedback. So you have questions, comments, anything you have to say, please hit us up. Don't forget that we're on Stitcher and iTunes. We would really appreciate your votes and your ratings. Five stars really helps us move up the tracks and lets people know about great board games. Until next week, this is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Drew. And we will save you not just a regular seat at the table, but we will completely chrome out your seat into a Game of Thrones throne so you can join us at the table. God, you really laid it on. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> that's what the people want. That's why I get paid the big bucks. Right, Anthony? That's, big bucks? That's what I'm getting paid, right? Oh, yeah. That's that Spurium money that's coming in each every week. I will someday send that to you. <laughs> I'm just holding it. Man. I'm just holding it. You know. Save Spurium. That's what I'm putting my uh, retirement fund in. Spurium. I'm heavily leveraged in Spurium. Got a safety deposit box full of literature. 